Therefore, since we received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service of worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We've been talking for a few weeks now about the operation of grace in our lives and in our life together in the church. And that's in that phrase, let us show gratitude because quite literally in that te in the text in the original text to show gratitude is a translation of a, of the greek expression to have grace to possess grace we uh find this in the name of the Lord's table that we come to today, the name Eucharist, which means good grace. Thanksgiving is the enjoyment of God's grace. And the enjoyment of God's grace is the employment of God's grace. When I enjoy God's grace, I employ God's grace. I show gratitude. And we talked about this like if a child got a bicycle for his birthday, how does he really show his gratitude? He can say it, and that shows it a certain, to a certain degree. It might depend on how he says it. You know, sometimes if you give a child something, you have to tell him to say thank you. Am I right? Oh, sometimes it doesn't depend on if it's a child. Sometimes we receive a good gift, a grace, and someone has to tell us to say thank you, to show gratitude. So sometimes a kid gets a great gift and and somebody says to the kid, well, say thank you. But how does a kid really show gratitude? He can say it, but he really shows gratitude when he gets a bicycle for his birthday by enjoying the bicycle. We really know he appreciates the gift because he loves riding it. And when he's riding it, his enjoyment of it shows and that's this idea of a Eucharist, this idea of having grace as showing gratitude.
It's the goodness of the gift enjoyed in a visible way. It's the enjoyment of grace in the employment of grace. So because I know the love of God, I show the love of God. Because I know the way of Christ, I live the way of Christ. Because I have benefited from the work of Christ, I do the work of Christ. It's not a religious duty. It's happy gratitude. And if I approach it as a religious duty, I pretty much undo it. Well, then we had, last time, we had three examples that we talked about. Brother, stranger, prisoner. Brotherly love. Philadelphia, Mineto, must remain, continue, abide. And he's talking about our life together in the church when he's talking about brotherly love. He's talking about we must reflect the grace of God in our relationships to each other. Jesus said, this is how they'll know you're my disciples, if you love each other. So we let grace operate in our fellowship in the church. Because I am forgiven, I am forgiving. And not for any other reason. So I don't wait to forgive you until you regret having offended me. I don't correct you until I really have forgiven you. So that when I might correct somebody, and the Bible does encourage us to help each other with our faults and problems, but when I bring your problem to you, it's to help you, not me. So I better forgive first, correct second. And it's, I better wait to correct until I really have forgiven. Because it is really easy to lapse. I can forgive you now and unforgive you tomorrow. But this is a reflection of how we have been treated, what we have gotten. It is having grace to be gracious. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 13. If I do this, 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 if I do all these amazing things, even if I perform miracles... but don't have love. I'm just making noise. It's of no profit. 
if it's not a reflection of the love of Christ. If it's not because I have love, I become loving. That is the principle here in the end, at the end of Hebrews. Show gratitude, have grace, operate from grace. Brotherly love must remain. Stranger love, <laughs> that's the hospitality word. Love of strangers, he says. Don't neglect that. And remember prisoners, people who are part of us who can't be with us because they're stuck someplace. And in the context of Hebrews, the prisoners we're remembering are prisoners because of their relationship to Christ. But, People might be prisoners for any number of reasons. People might be stuck out. And so we are called to reach out with the love of Christ. And then this, marriage is to be held in honor among all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled. Are you married? Are you happily married? I'm going to meddle with you today. Because here in this text of Scripture, marriage is one of these. It's one of these. Have grace, show grace, let grace operate. In fact, I'm going to kind of argue that it's the most important one you have if you're married. And it's so important, it's so important this says marriage is to be held in honor by everyone, by all, not just the married. By me, I'm not married. But marriage is to be held in honor by me. So I'm going to tell you how important your marriage is. This will be true if you're not yet married, but will be one day. This is how important that is. It is bigger than you think. However big you think it is, there's more to it. You see, the question, are you happily married, Most people, if they're still married, will say they're happily married. What do they mean? Do they mean that they're happy every day with the person that they married? I doubt it. Are you happy every day with the person you're married to? Can they make you unhappy? 
In fact, that person probably has more power to make you unhappy than any other person in the world. But here's the thing. We think that marriage is about having a happy life because people desire a partner in this life, and if they can find someone that will suitably fill the role of partner, then they think that will, be, that will lead to a satisfying life. And in large part, that's probably true. But that is not the point of it. That is not why God created marriage. It's maybe the nice side effect. Though there is a certain satisfaction in the relationship, there's more to it than that. This says, I'm going to translate this sentence literally now, precious the marriage. That's what it says. Or another word we could use is prized prized the marriage by all. It's really actually a simple set of words. And the word precious or prized or held in honor means greatly valued. If you ask what it's worth, this is an answer to the question. Every one of us should think marriage is extremely valuable of great importance and significance in life. And we should all have this idea, according to this text. Marriage is a thing of great value, surpassing value. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Well, there's really two answers. One, marriage is image-bearing. And two, marriage is image-bearing. Now, in your, if you're looking at the bulletin and you're looking at my notes, the two answers are marriage is image-bearing, and the second answer is marriage is evangelistic, gospel-preaching. And here's the thing about that. That's another way of saying the first thing. Marriage is image-bearing. If you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, which is the story of God's invention of marriage, chapter 1, it's the story of the creation of humanity. And in verse 27, we read this. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So far, it's singular. Male and female, he created them. And when God created humanity in his own image, he wasn't done until he made the woman. We know that because in chapter 2, you get that whole story. You get this whole story of God sees Adam and he's going, oh, that 
It's not good. He's alone. God saw that it was not good, and this is a surprise in this text because we've gone through this text at the various stages where God made things, and he made this, and then he, lo- he assesses it. So he saw that it was good. 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 When we get to chapter 2, he saw that it was not good. And that should, have got, that should get our attention. And the thing that is not good is that the man is alone. And so God and Adam, they go on a search. They go on a search to find a suitable partner for Adam. How do they do it? Well, there's a parade of other creatures, the animals. So God brings the animals and to see what Adam would say about them. See what Adam... And there's this parade of animals. And the conclusion at the end of that parade is there was not found a suitable partner. So then God put Adam to sleep. He took the rib. He formed Eve. He brought Eve to Adam. And Adam said, that's it. We would use this expression now. That's what I'm talking about. That's the thing we've been looking for. And actually, in the Hebrew, it says, finally. Finally. Yes. And she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's the right partner for Adam. And then we read the conclusion. So uh, that's why Moses says, that's why Men leave their parents and find a wife. And so God gets to very good after he's made a man and a wife. A married partnership. This is in the image of God. There's three basic elements of this. There might be more. I see three. We can read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. That marriage is image-bearing. It has something to do with how human beings show the nature of God in who we are. And so we're not really showing the nature of God in who we are alone. It takes the man and the woman. In 1 Corinthians 11, Verse 3, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, his, or the head of a wife, and God is the head of Christ. Now, there's this thing of headship here. And it says there's a relationship between the Son of God and the Father God. The Father's the head of the Son. 
And the son is the head of the church. And the, the son is the head of the man. And the man is the head of his wife. Now, we are all going crazy because we think this is about who's better. Because when we call someone the head of something, we think of them as superior. But God the Father is not superior to God the Son. God the Son is just as God as God the Father. But there is some kind of headship relationship between them. Hmm. We might need to explore that. And marriage reflects that reality. There's something in a marriage that reflects the fellowship of the triune God, the eternal relation of God. God's not done making the creature that's meant to show that until he has two of them. An intimate partnership. Our fellowshipping nature is a reflection of the fellowshipping nature of God himself. And so that brings us to the second thing here, which is fellowship, the intimacy of marriage is a display, is a model, an image of the intimate fellowship of God. The union, the fellowshipping unity of a marriage is meant, created for the purpose of showing in the creation the fellowshipping unity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This was God's purpose when He created human beings. Let us make man according to our likeness in, to bear our image. It's interesting that in the book of Genesis, God does stuff, creates things, God creates things, and then when it comes to the creation of man, the language changes, and it doesn't say what it, it doesn't say, so God said, let there be man, and there was man. It doesn't say that. He's done that at various stages, but when it comes to man, there's a conversation let us make man in our likeness to bear our image. There's a revelation, the very first revelation of the fellowship of God, the three-person God in the creation of humanity. And so the intimacy of your marriage is a display of the intimacy of the fellowshipping unity of the Trinity. That's more important than you thought. This is true of human fellowship in general, like friendship is also a reflection of the fellowshipping of God. But it's most clearly seen in a marriage. 
In marriage, fellowship involves the whole person. Body and mind, soul and spirit. Our material bodies are formed to serve this purpose. In the sexual relationship, you have the physical expression of spiritual intimacy. Human beings are created into bodies. And in marriage, right there in Genesis, it says, the two shall become one body. And so that intimacy, while it doesn't erase the individual identities of these two partners, it unifies them in marriage in a way that they can't be unified in any other relationship. It's a reflection of the intimate fellowship, the unity of the living God. So there's a headship like there is in the Trinity, Sorry, in the Trinity, and there's a fellowship that reflects the fellowship of the Trinity. There's then this thing I'm calling co-regency in Genesis. This is when God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the, every living thing that moves on the earth. So, God creates humanity to rule in the creation. And how does man do that? How does humanity exercise this function, be fruitful and multiply? <laughs> and so, a marriage forms the basis of multiplication of the family of the extension of the image of God, therefore the glory of God throughout the world, where we are the stewards of the other things he's made. And in this way, we reflect his nature as king of kings. Humanity is created to be God's representative in the material world, and this involves the fruitfulness of marriage, the expression of the family of man. Marriage is image-bearing. God hasn't finished making man in his image until he's made a man and a woman and brought them together in a marriage. Now, he says, very good. Now, the second thing I want to tell you is that marriage is evangelistic. That word evangelistic means gospel announcing. Gospel announcing. And this is about are demonstrating the reality of redemption. Demonstrating the nature of the relationship between Christ 
and the redeemed people, the church. This is in Ephesians chapter 5, especially. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. <laughs> Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects honors her husband. What Paul is telling us here is that marriage was created for the purpose of being a live demonstration and image bearing of the relationship between Christ and the redeemed people, his church. A relationship of redemption by grace received by faith. Now, here's the thing we all do. We get caught up in the phrase, in the word submit, in the word be subject. Because as before, as we do with the concept of headship, we think uh, this is some sort of declaration of the greater importance, and it is not. It is not. I hope to make that clear. Headship in marriage reflects the headship of Christ in the church. That's image-bearing. But here's the thing about Jesus Christ he is not a lording Lord. I need to say that again. He is not a lording Lord. He's, he said this to the disciples. You know how those Gentiles are. They give the people in authority, lord it over the people they're in authority over. Not us. He says, 
not us. No lording. And so if in your marriage relationship you think wives submit to your husband means something like husband, boss around your wife, you are wrong. It does not mean that. In fact, right here it tells us exactly what it means. Like the relationship of Christ to the church. And, oh, and at the very beginning, at the very top, like a title on this whole passage, it says, hey, everyone in the church, be subject to one another. In other words, humble yourself. This is let brotherly love remain. This is think of the other person as above you in some sense. Think of the other person Think of serving the other person's needs. And this is a universal rule for the whole church. And then wives to your own husbands is just one example. Oh, and then husbands love your wives is another example. And so if we read this text correctly, when we get to husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, what we're finding out there is Exactly how is a husband supposed to subject himself to his wife? By loving her like Christ loved the church. That's just the clear meaning of this text of Scripture. Be subject, everyone to everyone, husbands like this. Wives like this. Husbands like this. There is no room for lording. In fact, I read this text and I think, if anyone should be saying, sit down, honey, let me get you something to drink, it's the husband. Jesus is a serving Lord. Jesus does what he recommends, which is how do you exercise this actual authority, this headship? By serving, by setting an example of serving, by being the best at being below everyone. That's how he did it. And that's what he's looking for from us. So, when this text says, wives submit to your husbands as the church to Christ, I think, well, how does the church submit to Christ? We trust in his redeeming love. This is not about obedience, it's about faith. How do I submit to Christ? I say yes to His grace. He, uh, he, I am His. He has claimed me not by demand, 
but by redeeming love. So husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Submit yourself to her to provide for her. Should I say that again? Submit yourself to her to provide for her. Now, he's more specific than that. He says, Christ did this when he gave himself up for the church. And so, husband, give yourself up for your wife. Her life is more precious than yours. Her experience of the goodness of God in this life is your calling. Think what God did to bless you when he gave her to you. He trusted her to you. He gave you an amazing gift, and he calls you to exhibit the love of Christ in that relationship. Give yourself up for her. If a sacrifice needs to be made, you make it. Now, that doesn't mean she can't do this too. Of course she can. But the husband is in the role of redeeming lover. He has a certain initiative, and he has a goal. It says, he gave himself up for her to sanctify her, to set her apart. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean in the life of the church in relation to Christ? It means we are his and only his. We belong entirely to him. This is what Paul's talking about when he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. It means you, what do I do when I understand the goodness of God's grace to me in Christ? I'm like, I'm yours. And so the husband loves his wife, and the consequence is she's only for you because you were only for her. You gave yourself for her. She gives herself to you. Headship means in the life of the husband, you take initiative in her redemption. The third thing he says here is you cleanse her with the word. What purifies us in the is is the Word of God. What sets us apart is the promise of God, the assurance of God, of Christ in particular. What purifies me, what cleanses me, is the unconditional assurance of the love of God in Christ. Because I know the love of God in Christ, that purifies me that increases my devotion to Him. Give your wife 
Give your wife the unconditional assurance of your love. What that means is it does not depend on the quality of her response. That will be difficult at times. But you cleanse her with the word of your love, with the unconditional devotion of your heart to her service. That's a high, hard thing, I know. That's the calling of a Christian husband. You take care of her no matter what. Oh, and you need to tell her. You need to tell her. Now, when you got married, you probably stood up and told her something like that. Keep telling her. You see, what cleanses is the washing, the, the water washing of the Word. The good news, the gospel, is what cleanses us, what takes us and purifies us for Him, beautifies us for Him. It's, it's finding Jesus saying, <laughs> saying, it's finding Jesus saying, if anyone comes to me, I will never turn them away. But I will raise them up on the last day. Whoever believes in me has passed from death into life and shall not come into judgment. It's a promise verbalized, and that purifies our souls, living, walking in the assurance of grace. That's what Hebrews is talking about. Have grace, and having grace leads to showing grace. And so, husbands, because you have the love of Christ, you love your wife the way you've been loved. Now, here's the thing. Loving your wife the way Christ has loved the church, you have much room to grow. You are not there yet. But this is the high calling of a Christian husband to set her apart, to cleanse her with the promise of your unconditional care for her. This beautifies her, number four, because it leads to her, it leads her to be completely devoted to you. There's nothing more attractive in your wife than her devotion to you. Charm is deceitful, the Proverbs say. Beauty is vain, that, that means it doesn't last. 
Well, this beauty lasts. The beauty of that growing devotion that's led by the husband's initiative in serving his wife as Christ served the church so that she becomes increasingly devoted to him and they form this bonded partnership in life and in the gospel. The beauty of that is everlasting. Then there's a few other things Paul says here in Ephesians 5. Nourishes her, cherishes her. He provides what she needs for growth. He cherishes her. He provides the comfort of affection. And then the last thing is holding fast. Sorry, I've got to find it here. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, holding fast. He cleaves to his wife. <clears throat> he is faithfully devoted, and as the vow says, forsaking all others. Here, the people forsaken are the parents. And so, their relationship is the primary relationship. Now, <clears throat> I started by saying this is, that marriage is evangelistic. It is image-bearing in this exact way, that it's a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the redeemed people, the church. And that is, it turns out, what Paul's actually talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He's saying all of this, all of this talk about how husbands and wives ought to relate to each other has the purpose of the revelation of the relationship between Christ and the church. The, your marriage is an opportunity, is your best opportunity for you to demonstrate the nature of God's grace and our response to it. The unconditional goodness of God and the devotion that stems from it. And so, Husbands and wives have these roles to play in this live demonstration of the gospel. We can talk about the gospel. And we can show it. We show it in our brotherly affection, our brotherly love towards each other in the body. We show it in our welcoming of strangers. We show it in our outreach to stuck people, and we show it in our marriages. That is why it's here in the book of Hebrews. I mean, otherwise, this is a sort of odd, random thing to mention all of a sudden in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews has not been about marriage for one second up until now. 
It's still not about marriage. It's about Christ. It's about the supremacy of Christ and our devotion to Christ based on his outlandish grace, the privilege of knowing him. And he's saying, look, your marriage is a place for you to put this on display, to have grace, to show gratitude, to be a reflector of this amazing relationship that you have with Jesus. Revelation is the point. Marriage shows the nature of the gospel. So your marriage is more important than just whether you have a happy, satisfying life. Now, I personally think that a married couple that engages in marriage in this way will have a very satisfying marriage. And they will form a foundation for any children they may have that is solid. And here's the thing about raising kids. The most important thing about raising your kids is how unconditional is the love of that man for his wife? If no one can imagine him ever being devoted to anyone or anything else like he is to her. The kids that grow up there, man, powerful, powerful. And so your exhibition of the grace of God, your exercise of the grace of God in your marriage is a really big deal. A really big deal. I hope you will seize the opportunity in front of you for this purpose. Not just so you have a good life, but so that your life is a reflection of the very life of the triune God. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Lord, help us in every way to be true, to enjoy your grace, and to enjoy it in a visible way. Lord, I pray especially for every husband and wife in this room that we will learn how to have grace, how to show gratitude through this important relationship. Lord, help us to do this in every aspect of our lives as well. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.